Hey. Is this on? Okay. All right. <laughs> if I could get your attention, we get started. All right, as you know, uh, we're going through a series on the book of Acts, and we're going to do the impossible, which is get all 20-something chapters of the book of Acts in eight lessons, and so this is the third lesson. So today we're going to try to do three chapters, three through five. So if you have your uh, Bibles there, turn to Acts three through five. If you've noticed the last two weeks, uh, I think the principal topic, and it's going to be that way again today, is the idea of repentance. There's a tremendous transition in the in the uh, what's going on in Jerusalem. They're going from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. They're going from Israel to the church, and so it's a in this period of transition. The, the word repentance is very important because it literally means change your mind. Change your mind. And so you used to think this, now you need to think this. You need to change your mind. And if there's anybody that needs to repent, it's old Tom Brady. Stop <laughs> that. All right, so uh, in Acts chapter 3, as we saw in chapter 2 uh, last week, you have instant church. The church is born all of a sudden here in the book of Acts. Before Acts chapter 2 and the coming of the Holy Spirit upon Peter and the guys, they go out there and preach, and you immediately, verse 41, have 3,000 people are converted. You've got an instant church. And so the next couple of days, it doesn't say if it was the next day or a few days later, but it's probably in the near future here in chapter 3, uh, it continues from that point. How is the church now going to proceed? Uh, and so in looking at that, uh, I can't help but think back to chapter 1 when the, the apostles and seeing how much they've changed. Back in chapter 1, all they could think about was, when, is the, when are you going to set up the kingdom? How about now? We've been waiting all this time. What's the deal? I'm, you know, we're in a hurry. We want you to set up the kingdom, and we're going to rule, Right? And so the, the apostles were anxious and they were wanting Jesus to set up the kingdom of God so they could rule now that, and all their problems would be over. They wouldn't have to go through any kind of struggle or persecution. And Jesus said, no, not yet. There's going to be a delay. And during this delay, I need you guys to get busy. I need you to share the gospel with everybody, everybody in the world, really. And so you have the Great Commission there in Acts 1, eight, and I and I start thinking about that. I, I feel the same way. Why the delay? Let's go. Let's get on with the program. We don't need all this violence that's in the world, and all these wars, and all this crazy political stuff that's going on. We don't need this. Let's get this over with and get Christ back. Set up the kingdom. Bring peace back to earth. Why the delay? You're probably like me. You don't, you don't like to wait in lines. You don't like there to be a delay. Uh, I mean, think about it. The society we live in, we get our oil changed at Quick Lube. Our package is delivered by Federal Express. We go to fast food places to eat. We drive on expressways. On the radio, there's ads for home loans that are called instant approval loans. You know, people don't want to wait. 
It drives them crazy. We all, we're all like that. We are, what's the delay? We cook at home on microwaves. We want it in about three minutes. We don't want to wait. Delays are irritating. When you get on the highways, especially the tow road, and there's construction, this is not right. <laughs> and they have wrecks. I mean, I go by, this is terrible. I, have a, I feel guilty, but you go by and everything gets stacked up in one lane. It takes you an extra 15 or 20 minutes. And when you come by those people, I mean, those poor people, they're, they're wrecked. They're stranded and they're, you know, they're there for hours, right? But when I go by, I go, I th I'm thinking, <laughs> you know how much time you've cost me, you idiots, you know. That's terrible. I admit it. But we don't like to wait. We don't like delays like that. And so we, we're like the, the disciples. We want Jesus to come back immediately. And, you know, I, I even pray. Jesus, come back soon. I think I pray like that almost every day because there's so much trouble out there, you know, that I'd like to get behind me and have everything fixed. Uh, and so the answer is here in the book of Acts. You see, why a delay? 3,000 people in Acts chapter 2 were saved because of the delay. If Jesus had set that kingdom up the day that they wanted it set up, these 3,000 would not be in it. And then now to, in, in today's lesson, you'll see 5,000. So God saved 5,000 people by waiting at least a week. That's why there's a delay and why it continues now. Because every day people are coming to Christ and being saved. And that's why Jesus is delaying. It's also why the world continues to be such a mess because God is not violating anyone's free will. He's just allowing all this stuff that goes on that people want to do, all the carnage and all the depravity and all the corruption. God is just hands off. Okay, y'all, you wanted to rebel? You want to do things your way? You want to be God of your life and make all the decisions? Go ahead on. Let's see how that works. And, of course, it's a disaster called planet Earth. But in the meantime, something awesome and wonderful and incredible is happening, which is people are being saved every day. And that's why there's a delay, and you can see it. You know, if, if, if the disciples had had their way, none of this stuff that we're studying would have happened. That would have been the end to it. And it would have been a closed deal. Everybody that wasn't in the kingdom or wasn't saved before then would be out. And so God is giving everyone in his great patience and love waiting for people to come, anybody who will come to come. And that's why the delay we've got here. Also, the, in today's lesson, you're going to see uh, the very first thing that happens is there's a miracle. A lame man is saved, and, and, and he is healed. And if you're, you know, I was thinking about that guy, because it, it says he was lame from birth, and here he is, an adult, and I'm, so I'm thinking, think of this guy. You think, I don't like a delay. What about this guy? He had to live his whole life, probably 30 or 40 years, as a lame person who couldn't walk. So poor and destitute, he's got to have somebody carry him to the gate of the temple, and he begs you know, for, for money. And now Jesus comes along, 
in, in the, in the, represented by Peter and John, and saves him. Well, Jesus had been coming to Jerusalem for the Passover and Pentecost and all these celebrations his whole life. But he didn't ever heal him. You can imagine this guy, he probably knew all about Jesus. He probably saw him come in and out. He heard all the stories. This guy's a healer. He's done all these great things. And he's probably thinking, what about me? Where's mine? Why do I have to go through all this trouble? And so what we see here is it's the perfect time for Jesus to heal this guy because there's going to be, because of what happens to him, this huge crowd is gathered up there at the temple. And again, it gives Peter an opportunity to preach a sermon, preach the gospel, and all these thousands of people believe in Christ and are saved and are in the church. So wait a minute. Let's see if we can figure this out. Our timing is not God's timing. God knows the best timing. God has a bigger and better plan that we can't imagine. This guy couldn't imagine that he was lame because Christ was going to use him to save as being a part of the story that saves all these thousands of people. All he could think of was himself and his desire to be healed and taken care of on an immediate basis. So surprise, he's going to be saved when he's not even expecting it. How about that? Saved when you're not even expecting it. He said, can I have some change? You know, some money? And Peter's going to say, I can't give you any change, but I can change your life. And he wasn't even looking for that. And so this guy's going to be healed. And his, his legs, uh, if you read it, it sounds like they were kind of deformed. And, and he sees them healed and, and like recreated legs. And so he can get up and it says he leapt and he jumped and he <laughs> danced. You know, and I, I have this in my own image, you know, they had, they had a pretty good basketball court up there on the Temple Mount, I, I think. And uh, he started dunking basketballs, you know, because I watched that slam dunk contest. <laughs> I saw pictures of it anyway. And I was thinking, that guy, he could probably do that after Jesus got through with it. But these miracles in the book of Acts are unexpected. Think, think about that. They're unexpected. You normally think, especially, and I think it's because we watch these crazy faith healers on television, the televangelists, you know, and they say, if you believe, you know, and if you have the faith and you send me a check, you can be healed, right? That's the way, so we're kind of trained to think that way. The fact is, as we go through the book of Acts, you're going to see that none of the miracles in the book of Acts are done to believers. And most of them are not expected. Wonder what's going on. I thought it took faith. This guy is there's nothing to do with faith. He's not even looking for it. It just Peter just says, get up, and the guy suddenly can get up. So what's going on? Well, even in Jesus' ministry, you look at the book of John, the Gospel of John, and look at all the miracles there. None of those miracles in the Gospel of John took faith. The water into wine? No. 
the guy at the pool of Bethesda, we don't even know, who, that guy didn't even know who Jesus was. They said, who healed Jesus? I don't know, some guy was. The blind guy in chapter 9? How about the, the he, he, he didn't know what was going to happen. How about feeding the 5,000? The disciples said, how are we going to feed all these people? And Jesus says, well, you feed them. He, they said, that's impossible. And then Jesus feeds them. They weren't expecting it. Walking on the water, they totally weren't looking for that one. Right? And then the raising of Lazarus. They were all mad at Jesus because he didn't get there in time to save him before he died. They had no idea that he was going to raise him from the dead after he'd been dead for four days. Unexpected. And in each case, they had a purpose that was much greater than they could have ever imagined. The purpose was much more than just compassion. I mean, if he had that compassion, if that was the point of all the miracles, compassion, then everybody would have been healed. It's only selective people were. Because it was always for a purpose, a teaching purpose. And in this case, to draw a crowd, they'd hear the gospel, and thousands would be saved. And so this guy was an instrumental part in saving all these people, and we see that God has a plan, and God is sovereignly in control, and God knows what he's doing. We're anxious. We want something to happen in our own life. You may have been praying for something for years. I don't know. And it hadn't happened yet. But, but look at this and see that it's all in God's hands. He knows what's going on in your life and these people's lives. And he's got a timing for answering prayers. And he's got a reason for doing what he does. And it's huge. It's way beyond just this one guy being healed. Thousands are going to benefit from his, his problem, his issue. So God sovereignly chose all these people to be healed for his purposes. And great things are happening. So now in chapter 3 through 5, basically what you're looking at is the witness of the apostles that's now going to continue. They had their first sermon in chapter 3, I mean 2, and now in chapter 3 through 5 it's going to continue again a series of them witnessing not only to crowds, but they're even going to be before the Jew Jewish ruling body, the Sanhedrin. We're going to arrest them twice in these chapters and bring them in, and they get a chance. It, it's really cool because Peter and John, they don't see it as a bad thing. They wouldn't get a chance to speak to these Sanhedrin guys any other way. So when they're arrested... You know, I get the impression it's like, this is great. We're arrested. Now we get to share the gospel with these guys, these holier-than-thou religious leaders that actually don't have a clue as to the truth, and we get to share it with them. So the, the rapid growth of the church as a result of the witness of the apostles and it's also going to bring them into conflict with the religious leaders. Uh, you're going to see two arrests here. You're also going to be, the rest are going to be separated by an internal problem with the church. So when you've got instant church, every church has got issues, right? Problems, people problems. And most of them we're better off not knowing anything about. 
right? And they're, we're going to see, sure enough, even in this early church, as great as it was, and as sharing as they, and loving as they were, they, even they had some internal problems. And so, so we'll see that. Uh, so you're going to see a miracle, a sermon, a trial, another sermon, the church's response, and then another trial. So there's a lot happening here. Let's look at it. Uh, chapter 3. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour. That's 3 p.m. in Jewish time because their, their clock started at 6 a.m. And a certain man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms. And so it was a perfect position because people were constantly, uh, they had prayer time and they did a sacrifice at that 3 o'clock prayer time. So there would be a whole lot of traffic coming in there and he would be able to uh, have a lot of customers, you might say, coming through there. And so he was at the perfect place. And when he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. He's asking for money. He's going to get something that he's not even expecting. Peter, along with John, fixed their gaze upon him and said, Look at us. I imagine most of the people coming through there didn't pay much attention to this guy or they'd toss him a coin and move on. And this guy probably wouldn't look at the people very hard. But in this case, it was like they stopped the progression of the people moving in. They stopped and stared at him. And so he's like, what, who are these guys and what do they want? And he's, Peter says, I do not possess silver and gold. I don't have what you're asking me for. But what I do have, I will give you. What he does have is what the guy actually needs. He needs physical Miracle, he also needs spiritual salvation. I do have, I'll give to you, in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. And with a leap, he stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And so I, I see he's not only healed, but it looks like to me he's attributing it to God and uh, praising, worshiping God for it. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. So a crowd, like, what happened? That's that guy I've been looking at all my life. Can that be the same guy? So they all start talking in crowd forms. They're all trying to figure out what's going on. Verse 10 says, wonder and amazement. And while he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon. It's like a porch up there on the Temple Mount. All, all around the Temple Mount, they built these porticos because you can imagine it was sunny and they had these shaded areas with all these uh, benches and places people could sit and talk. And so they got under the, the shade and a crowd formed and it was the perfect opportunity for people in verse 12, for Peter in verse 12, to tell them what just happened. Men of Israel, so here's his sermon. He gets another chance at another crowd, another sermon. Why do you marvel at this, or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? You're looking at us like we did this. No, we're just people like you. It is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Look at the continuity 
between the Old Testament to the New Testament, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. He's saying this, it's the same God. We represent the same God that you've always believed in, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, only now he has sent his son into the world. He's doing something different. Same God. He has glorified his servant Jesus. So he calls Jesus. He's going to actually kind of identify Jesus with uh, five different names. And the first one is servant we see here. And that probably comes from, since he's identifying with the Old Testament, uh, in Isaiah, Isaiah has all those messianic prophecies, especially in chapter 52 and 3, and Isaiah calls the Messiah the servant of God who takes away the sin, who takes all the sin of the world upon himself. And so it's a great name to call Jesus, and Jesus taught, as you know, to be a servant, and he was the perfect example of being a servant. So God has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered up. Remember the guy, Jesus Christ, the Nazareth guy that you crucified? That guy. So the one whom you delivered up and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him, but you disowned the holy and righteous one. So here's another name for Christ. So we need our Savior to be holy and righteous and without sin. So it's a great identification for who Jesus is, holy and righteous, as opposed to just some mere man like us who's a sinner. That's what Peter's saying. He said, it wasn't us, it's by the power of God in sending his son, Jesus Christ, the holy and righteous one. In verse 15, another name for him, the prince of life. He is the king, the prince of life, of spiritual life and of eternal life. The one whom God raised from the dead, that vindicates what Jesus said and who he is, the resurrection. God raised him from the dead, a fact to which we are all witnesses. And you notice that they're not going to argue with him. He's going to say this again to the religious leaders. They don't argue either. You know why? Because the tomb is empty. If it wasn't, they could go, hey, we can take you up here and show you the body. No, there's no body there. So they don't argue that point, here or later. And on the basis of faith in his name, Peter's faith, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. Jesus did this, and it was about him. And he is present. His spirit is in us and has done this. And now, brethren, I know you acted in ignorance when you delivered him up and when you said to Pilate, crucify him. You just didn't know. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ should suffer, he has thus fulfilled. So all the prophets spoke of the Messiah, that's the Hebrew, in Greek it's the Christ, and the Christ means, again, another name for him, the Christ means the anointed one of God, the one God who has sent into the world to redeem us, to buy back us, to bring us into that relationship with God. That's what he's accomplished. And so what do we need to do? What do the people there need to do? 
Verse 19, again, repent. Change your mind. You used to think it was all about keeping these, these laws and these traditions, being legalistic, being involved in this religion, this institution, and all its rites and rituals. Don't think that anymore. Now you need to change your mind and think this is about Jesus Christ. This is about receiving him as your Savior. It's a whole new ball game. Change your mind. And if you do, your sins will be wiped away. In times of refreshing, you'll be a new person in Christ. It may come from the presence of the Lord. When the Lord comes upon you, you'll be a new person. That he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you. He'll be your Savior to you. Whom heaven must receive until, so Jesus is in heaven now, until when? Until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. And they all said, yeah, we live in a fallen, messed up world. But in the end, God is going to send the Messiah to deliver the world, judge it, and set up his kingdom, which they, they were all looking for. That's this time of restoration. You know, when God created everything, what did you have? Paradise. And then when they disobeyed God, what happened? Paradise lost. When Christ comes back, what's going to happen? Paradise regained. Paradise regained. And that's what he's saying. And this was all predicted by the Old Testament prophets. Again, the continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Covenant and the New Covenant. They predicted it, and Jesus fulfills it in the New Testament. And he says, okay, what prophets? Moses said, the Lord God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed in everything he says to you. You will be judged by what he says and how you respond to it. Was what Moses said in Deuteronomy 18.18. 18. All the people in Israel had been taught that passage as referring to the Messiah. And when Jesus fed the 5,000, remember what happened afterwards? The crowd came and said, this is the guy that fulfills the prophecy of Moses. This is the prophet Moses spoke about. And they wanted to make him king. John 6, 14. And it shall be, back to Acts, and it shall be that every soul that does not heed that prophet, again, this is what Moses said, if you don't listen to Jesus, you shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And a lot of people go, well, that's just not nice at all for God to do that. <laughs> the fact is this. I've had people say, well, I, I just don't believe in a God that would judge people and send them to hell. And, well, you know, in John, you know the, the Great Commission, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, whoever believes in him shall not die but have everlasting life. You know what the next two verses say? Jesus says, I came to save you. But if you won't allow it, if you won't believe me, if you won't receive me, the result is on you. Not my fault. I loved you and I came and I gave myself up for you. I did everything I could do. And if you won't take it, it's on you. People don't want to hear that. They want to blame it on God. It's not my fault. Uh, yeah, 
it is. And so that's what that's what Moses had said. If you won't listen to him, you're you know it's on you. You destroyed yourself. Verse twenty four. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days. And even uh, quotes the prophecy to Abraham in verse twenty five. Uh, in your seed, your descendant Jesus, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Um, the New Testament clearly says that that was speaking of Jesus. Look at Galatians 3.16. For you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you away from your wicked ways, that repentance that's required that change of life that will result from having Jesus. So a great sermon, and if you jump forward just to see if you're going, well, what happened? What did they do? Look at chapter 4, verse 4, the very end of it. Many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So <laughs> you had a tremendous response. So now what happens? The religious leaders see thousands of people leaving their religious institution and joining this new way that Peter and John are organizing. And they're going, wait a minute, we've got to stop this deal. If this continues, think of the amount of money we'll be losing. What's going to happen to our deal? And so as they're speaking this way, the priests, so they're the head people there at the temple, and the captain of the temple guard, they, have a, they, were, they were allowed to have their own temple police there underneath Roman authority, but they kept order in Jerusalem. The Jews were able to do that, and, and Rome allowed them uh, to do that. And so these are the guys, the temple guard are the ones that arrested Jesus on the Garden of Gethsemane. And here they were, the captain of the temple guard says, hey, we got a problem here, we got do something about this. And the Sadducees, they were the aristocrats. They were the ones who had the money and the property, and they had made deals with the Romans. They don't need anybody rocking the boat. So they're alarmed. And they all, these people together, came upon Peter and John and being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead they laid hands on them. See, the, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, so these guys are teaching something that their opponents, the Pharisees, believe in. So they can't have that, and they laid hands on them, put them in jail until the next day. And then you jump forward to uh, verse 7. They have a trial. You can imagine they're drugged before this 70-member Jewish religious body that's... Uh, it's raised platform, they're sitting, and it's like a semicircle, and they're put in the middle of it, and all these guys are looking down at them. And most of the people they have there like that are scared to death, as you can imagine. They have, these pe people have the power to have you flogged, power to let you rot in prison. So people are scared of these guys. And so they say to them, by what power and what name have you done this, healed this guy? converted all these people. Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. That, that filled means control. It's 
the Holy Spirit was speaking through him. He said, rulers and elders of the people, if we were on trial today, he just confidently gets up and gives them the answer. He's not shaking. He's not afraid. If we're on trial for doing a good thing, a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. And they point to the, the lame guy who's now well, walking around, jumping around. And about Jesus, he quotes scripture from, from uh, I think, uh, Psalm 118. He is the stone, Jesus is a stone, which was rejected by you, the builder, by which he became the very cornerstone. So Jesus is the cornerstone of God's church that he's building. It's all on top of him. It's all about him. And look at verse 12. This is something y'all need to, we all need to memorize. It's a key passage. Because people tend to say, well, you know, there's many ways to heaven. This is just maybe one of them. Verse 12 says, and there is salvation in no one else. Why is there salvation in no one else? He explains it. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given by men by which we must be saved. Given among men by which we must be saved. God has given one Savior to atone for sin. Now let me ask you the question. If you don't want Jesus, you want some other guy, if you want, okay, let anybody, you know, Muhammad, Buddha, Confucius, pick one of these guys. Can they atone for your sin? <laughs> no. They don't even claim to be able to do that. And that's what Peter's saying. There's only one guy that can atone for your sin. I'd like to atone for it, but I got, I got trouble with my own stuff. And you can't Atone for mine. We're all sinners. We don't qualify. Only Jesus is holy and righteous and perfect and sinless. Only Jesus is God in the flesh so he can make a sacrifice of infinite value so that sins, past, present, and future are forgiven. So this is the exclusivity of it. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John, they were amazed. Who are these guys that are so confident and speak so boldly to us? I mean, aren't they Galileans, uneducated and untrained? They're not like us. We got doctorates. These guys got nothing. They're marveling and began to reckon them, recognize them as having been with Jesus. They spent three years with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. What are they going to say? You didn't heal this guy? It wasn't the power of God that did it? Here he is. So they ordered him to go aside and they spoke to one another. And What are we going to do for the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place? is apparent. We can't deny it. And so uh, as you go down through the verses here, they basically say, okay, we're going to turn you loose. You had not done anything wrong. But we're going to warn you and we're going to command you 
not to speak in the name of Jesus again. We can't have all these people leaving. So, so no more evangelism, no more proselytizing. That's it. And so what's Peter and John's response? Well, I expect, you know, they're humble, just like Jesus was. And so they're servants, and so they're going to obey, right? Not so fast. Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. <laughs> Who are going to obey, God or you? Yeah, are you kidding me? For we cannot stop speaking what we have both seen and heard. We're eyewitnesses, and we've been commanded, we've been given the commission by Christ, and we cannot stop speaking. And so they let him go. And what's the church's response? It's great. You know, they, they release them, and they go back to all the church body. And the, naturally, if you're a part of the church, you're going... How did that happen? Weren't you, weren't you telling the truth? Weren't you helping people? And you were arrested? And so they quote scripture. It's always good to refer to scripture. Always. Opinions are nice. Everybody's got one. But scripture has the truth. The scripture explains. And he quotes Psalm 2. Now here's what happened. You know, Pilate and Herod and Caiaphas and Annas and all those guys hate each other's guts. They're all rivals. But when it came to Christ, they, they all came together and agreed on crucifying. We got, I don't know, I don't like you, but we got to get rid of this guy. The enemy of my enemy becomes my friend. And that's what uh, verse 25 and 26 say. For truly in the city there were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, who now disanoint both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, all these people together came together against Christ. And now, Lord, do they cry about it? Do they whine about it? Do they give up? No, just the opposite. They get excited. This is fantastic. And, and they pray, and you see verse 29, their prayer is, help us preach, help us do this. Help us to go boldly out and preach the gospel. This is awesome. We're going to get arrested again. I don't care. We'll just get to speak to the Sanhedrin again. I saw a couple of those guys were listening pretty closely. I want another shot at them. Right? What an attitude. Awesome nature of this. And so they, they went out and they continued to share, verse 33, with great power the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of Christ and the grace that was among them all uh, and there also you see the church, everybody's helping each other and meeting each other's needs and so you can see the two relationships that we all have there one is to the church, the people in the church to edify them and meet their needs and two is to the outside unbelieving world as evangelists okay uh, and then chapter 5, you kind of have a, a repeat of this. You start off with some internal problems, which they deal with. I'll let you read that because uh, I'm running out of time. But then you see again that they're arrested again there in chapter 5. And they're, and they're thrown in jail. And I love, this is, this is like great comedy. Look at this deal. 
They're thrown in jail, so they think these, they've shut these guys up and they got them locked up. And verse 19, an angel of the Lord during the night opened the gates of the prison and taking them out, he said, go your way, stand and speak to the people in the temple, the whole message of this life. So they're released from prison miraculously and directed to go about, out and preach again. Meanwhile, the Sanhedrin is meeting and talking about this. Well, we shut those guys up. We fixed their wagon. We got them locked up. That'll put an end to them and drag them back up here. And sure enough, the guards go down there and they're not there. <laughs> and it says they're greatly perplexed. The council is patiently waiting for them to be brought from prison so that they could read them the riot act and they're not even there. And also, we saw earlier, the Sadducees don't believe in angels. Think of the irony. It was an angel that let up. Hey, you know those angels that we don't believe in? <laughs> they, they let them out. Wasn't my fault. And they were greatly perplexed in verse 24. And so they go out to the temple. They look all around. They find them. They drag them back in. In verse 28, sure. We gave you strict orders not to continue preaching. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. That's the threat. And so we get a short version in verse 29 of Peter's response, Peter and John's response. Hey, we must obey God rather than men. That's why we're out there preaching. When we go back out, we're going to do it again. And so let me uh, wrap it up with... Uh, just a, a really cool piece of irony here in verse 34. Uh, we know from later on in Acts, we're, we'll see Gamaliel again. What a name that is, right? Look at verse 34. This guy's name is Gamaliel. Anybody here named their sons Gamaliel? Don't. Can you imagine the fun people would make of Gamaliel, I love it. So here he is, a teacher of the law, respected, and we learn later on he's like the most famous, most respected teacher, the wisest man on the council. He runs the seminary there in Jerusalem that all the Pharisees have to go to. And he stands up in all his wisdom and he says, men of Israel, take care of what you purpose to do with these men. And basically what he's going to say is, you know, these kind of guys, these false prophets and these false messiahs come up all the time. They've been going on for hundreds of years and they have some followers and a big deal and then they all fall away. Don't worry about it. He'll take care of himself. And so in verse 38 he says, so in this present case with these guys, don't make martyrs out of these guys. Stay away from these men. Let them alone. For if this plan or action should be of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. He has no idea the truth of what he just said. Because in the history of the church, for about the next 275 years, the stronger the persecution more martyrs that were being martyred, 
the faster the church grew. I mean, by the end of the first century, there was millions of Christians. So just not too long after this. And so exactly what Gamaliel didn't believe that happened, but the, the logic he used, he's kind of indifferent to these guys. Don't worry about these guys. Just get rid of them. They'll, they'll go away. But what he said was that to win the argument is what actually happened. This was of God, and it grew and grew and grew to an immense proportion. So the Bible says, because that's true, this is of God, I wonder, in Gamaliel's case, when he saw this happening, the next year and the next year and the next year, thousands and thousands of church being built up, because the first church was in Jerusalem, made up of Jews. And just early on, they probably had 10 to 15 to 20,000 people in the city of Jerusalem that believed in Christ. It was exploding. And so I wonder if Gamaliel, he said, you know, if, it's, if, if it is of God, you don't want to mess with it because you'll be found fighting against God. And I thought, I wonder if Gamaliel was influenced when it did happen like this and came to Christ and believed in Jesus. We'll never know. <laughs> and that's why the Bible says, hey, you need to respond now before it's too late. Fact is, you never know how soon it will be too late. Gamaliel, come now while you got a chance, buddy. Don't wait around. And the same message goes to all of us. The invitation's there. Take it, make it yours. Make Christ your Savior. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us with these great stories, the birth of the church, the history of the church. So awesome how you worked, how you did these miracles and used them for your glory to accomplish your purposes. And we pray the same thing, Lord. We, we all have issues and problems, and we know, Lord, that you love us and you care about us. But it's going to be according to your timing when you answer those prayers. It's going to be according to your plan, and it's going to be greater amazing that we could have ever imagined. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>